Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Asil Diab, also known as Sudalove, is a Sudanese street graffiti artist who has lived all over the world but spent most of her formative years in Doha, Qatar. But when her home country was in the midst of overthrowing its president of 30 years, she went back with her art supplies to honor the lives of the young protesters who were being killed in the streets. There are very few people who would return to a country in the midst of political upheaval. There are even less who would be documenting it with a spray paint can, but Asil did. But before you get to that story, you have to learn about her. You need to know that she's the daughter of a former Sudanese ambassador whose entire professional trajectory changed when Omar al-Bashir took power in 1989. You need to know how much she has struggled with her identity as an African, Arab, Muslim, third culture kid. You need to know how she had no other choice but to become an artist and use it to tell powerful stories. In this episode, we discuss her own struggles with identity growing up. What studying in the U.S. taught her about the accessibility of art and recount the powerful scene she witnessed while painting a country in transition. Her story is complex and layered and honestly, I'm glad she stopped by to tell it. Welcome to the Global Chatter. Okay, we are ready to go. So I um, always start these podcasts off saying I'm excited about each guest. And it's true because I think I bring some of the coolest people on the planet. And so this episode is no excuse and it's no different. And I am excited to bring this woman on because she's someone that I met while I was living in Qatar and I've actually been following your story. So you don't know this, <laughs> but I okay. actually, I follow you on social media and I'm following everything that you're doing. So. Nice, nice, and nice. so I thought, man, this, you are someone that my audience needs to hear from just because you bring a perspective that's very different as who you are as a woman. So thank you, Asil Diab, for coming on to the Global Chatter. <laughs> Thanks for having me, man. Glad to be here. <laughs> And I, I mean, real talk for anyone who's going to listen to this when it when it airs. She is in Africa. She is dealing with electricity issues. So if if things go left or right, I mean, we keep it very real on this podcast. <laughs> we'll just come back or figure out a way to edit the rest of the conversation. So, so where you know, and and I think that's a good way to kind of start off. Where are you right now um, listening in from? 
I'm in uh, Riyadh, Khartoum, Salman Sudan, and I do have backup for the electricity. It's just, it takes a minute or two in between, and sometimes, you know, they're just trying to figure things out downstairs, but don't worry about it. They'll come back eventually. <laughs> come back eventually. And, and how long have you, how long have you been in Khartoum this go around? I was here, um, well, I, I was here since last December, so. Okay. 2019 spent new years and my flight back to doha was march 14 mm-hmm. and on the day of my flight the airport closes down right you know because i have the best luck in the world of you know? course <laughs> so my flight is like 8 p.m and i'm trying to go to the airport and i get a whatsapp text that i thought it was a rumor as well so i had to make a couple of phone calls and when i made the phone call they're like the that your flight didn't actually fly out from Doha to Khartoum because, you know, everybody's shutting, that all countries are shutting down their airports. Yeah. So, so I ended up staying the entire year. Really? Okay. Wow. And I, I, I flew back because my residency permit was about to expire in Qatar. Yeah. So I flew back, I think November 28th or something. Yeah. And that was when my um entry permit to Qatar so there's so many things now because of the coronavirus like the entry permits and stuff yeah um so yeah I had to do the test and be in Doha before November 28th so I think I thought November 26th or something wow um I spent two weeks and came back on the third week and you know it's February now so I've been here for a year and Three months, probably. more likely. Yeah. I'm, and I'm going to say, I'm sure for someone who's as busy and does the work that you do, it probably is the longest time you've been grounded in a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, funny thing is, I, I, I was still moving around when it was, you know, Corona. And immediately when that happened, like the next day, I, you know, I started this new project and started making proposals. So I was still working, even though there was a lockdown. But my excuse was that I was doing uh, a street art campaign on the coronavirus. So I was able to move around <laughs> when everybody else was staying home. And I was telling people to stay home when I was staying right? home. But I had an excuse to do that. <laughs> Love it. No, and and I, I think that's a really good entry point to, to where I want to go with this, because let's sort of set this up. You, you are an artist and we're going to get into the details of that, but let's really set this up for folks who don't know you. So mm-hmm. I was doing my research and I didn't know this. I didn't know this at all. You are, you are Sudanese, but you were born in Romania. Bucharest, Romania. Yeah. Okay. So tell me kind of, <laughs> tell me a little bit about your childhood and actually, you know, why were you not that you couldn't be born in Romania, but why were you born in Romania and sort of the international component of your childhood? Um, so I was born in Bucharest specifically because my dad was based there as the ambassador of Sudan to Romania, or is it to Romania of Sudan? <laughs> Something. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so yeah, I was I was born there, and um, yeah, I think we stayed there for like two or three years before he was based somewhere else. And my dad's been ambassador for fifteen years. So mm-hmm. in other places like Jordan, that's where my sister was born, Yusra, mm-hmm. and um. Both my other siblings were born here in Sudan, for example, uh, and we moved up, we moved around in Europe. Um, he was also in Kenya and Tanzania and other places. Wow. Um, but 
I don't remember Romania at all. I just, we have a lot of footage. My dad used to take a lot of videos of us as children, mm-hmm. you know, at the house. All I remember that each one of us had a nanny. <laughs> my mom's job was to look pretty and be the ambassador's wife oh, hey <laughs> and uh you know and uh and, and and we we had to do a lot of classes of like ballet and mm-hmm. piano and stuff like that um and that was it uh we came to so when the overthrown president Amir Bashir, uh took power in 89 i was born in 88 right mm-hmm. so that's and I was born in September 80th, so that's um, a few months after that is when Amir Bashir came in. I think mm-hmm. it was February or something. Mm-hmm. And all I know is in the morning, on the day uh, when Amir Bashir took power uh, here in Sudan, this on the same day, uh, my dad and a lot of other diplomats were uh, basically fired because mm-hmm. they were too liberal for the Islamist regime. Mm-hmm. And my dad, all I know is, and even growing up, my dad was always like, I'm never going back to Sudan, you know, mm-hmm. this crazy Islamist. And, um, so he he got this uh, position as a political researcher at the uh, uh, foreign affairs in Qatar. So mm-hmm. that's where we went in 95. And I grew up in, I grew up there. I grew up in Qatar. Wow. I mean, that's yeah. a pretty intense story. I think even just up to that, <laughs> up to that point. Right. Um, and, and political change is actually going to be part of your art as we get down to it. And so, mm-hmm. so as up until that point, obviously you'd lived in different places and then you moved to Qatar. So what, what was kind of your experience living in Doha, especially as a third culture kid who had lived in other places. And then obviously your father, did a shift in his career because of what was happening at home? Well, uh, when we got to Qatar, I was six years old, right? And um, all the schools I went to were either American uh, curriculum or British. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, the, in the beginning, they were Americans. Uh, up to graduation, um, well, year 10, I, I believe I switched to GCSE, which was a British system. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in all these schools and you know all this traveling, I have met a lot of people from different backgrounds and religions, and I was exposed to too much, um, and not really knowing Sudan or not knowing my true identity very well, except from the stories that I hear from my dad and my family or stuff like that. But I didn't really know my family that well. You know, I wasn't as well tra- traveled as I was. I wasn't really. I was really confused where home was, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I kind of found home in all these places and all these cultures and all these religions and all these people. So all of that combined made up, I believe, my childhood and my personality. Yeah, must have been. Did I, I, you know, and it's interesting because I went to Qatar as an adult. And so there's some things of, of Qatar that reminded me when I was growing up in Cameroon as a child. And some things I was oh. like, this, this is very different, right? Because I'd never been in a, for example, predominantly Arab environment. I'd been in a strongly Muslim environment, but not necessarily Arab. And so mm-hmm. I'm even curious for you, did you, and it's interesting because you've grown up kind of in international spaces, even in Doha, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and, and Doha is actually pretty international in a lot of ways for people who haven't been there because... Mm-hmm so many people are from other places. 
I don't think at the time it was that international. I think this is recent, you know, with them buying off like the uh, Barcelona football team. Yeah. Is it Barcelona? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's like it be, the Qatar, the, the actual word Qatar became a logo. So you see it everywhere now with the Qatar yeah. Airways and the airport. Like, I think this, this has been happening in the past five years is where there's so much emphasis on building Qatar as a brand, not even a country. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that's um, true. The deal with Harrods in London and just, just a lot of stuff. But at the time, um, I came back to Sudan in, uh, I think, 2004, I believe, or 2003. And I did high school here for a year. So we came here wow. um, as a family for a holiday. And when it was time to leave, I was like, I'm not leaving. <laughs> I'm like, what? Why would you want to live here? I'm like, I don't know. I just, I need to figure myself out. So I wanted to take a year of, you know, just, I mean, it's high school. I'm young. I uh, I have a lot of energy. So why not waste the whole damn year, you know? Right. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so it was really hard to, you know, move about here because, you know, every there's a very big, the first thing I noticed, the difference was there was a very big pedestrian culture here in Sudan. Yeah. Versus always being in your car or at home in Qatar, you know, you're very homey over there. And when you go out, it's just like you go out to eat movies, just like specific yeah. things to do. You know, um, there was one theme park at, at the time as well, like Aladdin theme park. You know what I mean? And yes. there was no, I don't know. There was just, I mean, we used to live in the compounds. And that's 90% of the housing in Qatar, compounds and apartment yeah. villas as well. Yeah. So other than just people that I meet in, in within the compound, uh, the, you know, the residency, what do you call it? People who live inside the compound and people that I meet in, in high school, I am not really, I don't know anything else beyond that. So I wanted to like broaden my horizons and come back here and really find out what my roots are. And I was, you know, 16, 15 at the time. I, you know, I just wanted to be in touch with something from back home other than, you know, what my dad thinks about the government or Sudan or whatever. Because I wanted to make my own judgment of what Sudan was. So um, coming back here, like I said, that's the first thing I, I noticed. There was, you know, there's a lot of stuff to do. Like if you wanted to go get bread for lunch, I had to actually walk out, go stand in line. <laughs> And, you know, um, just to buy like a bag of a lot of bread versus, you know, my dad coming home for work and bringing it home for us. And thought that everything was so easy, mm. easily accessed mm. um, in Qatar, you know, and um, I was privileged and I didn't even know it. Mm. You know, Say more. And protected and, and, and protected uh, ever since birth and, you know, being in an embassy and the videos I saw of my childhood, I just I wasn't aware of all of this, I thought this was just normal, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, coming back here and going to high school, a lot of people, when I say I'm from Qatar, didn't even know what Qatar was. Um, <laughs> the, the actual, like, pronunciation of Qatar in, in, in Arabic means train. So people saw me make fun of me, the girl that came from the train in high school, you know, <laughs> yeah. or just... I had to say, oh, Qatar is right next to Dubai, you know, right underneath. You know, I had to like geograph geographically um, explain where Qatar was. So that was that was uh, intense. So I I thought it was an experience that had to happen, you know. Mm. And that's super powerful. Like I, so I wonder, 
because you you went back to the place that technically would be home <laughs> home and I'm putting it in quotes because I I get it yeah. what was it for you so you you, you chose to spend a year there what do you think you kind of gained from that experience and how do you feel people reacted to you? Because one of the challenges I often have conversations with TCKs is people sort of see you as one of them, but they're like, but you grew up in these other places. And, and sometimes you get kind of othered because you didn't have the same experiences and that can happen with both family and the community. And so what was it like for you as a teenager? So before making the decision to stay here, I went to high school in this uh, British school in Qatar, which was predominantly white. Um, So not even like, I'm not just African, I'm like the only darks, you know, from the few dark skinned people in high school. And it it, it was, you know, it was um, as much as I was adapting with everybody and just, you know, I wasn't a shy kid or anything, but I it was just so confusing to me. You know what I mean? I felt like I wasn't, I had no holding ground per se. Hmm. So, um, and then, you know, just the school, you know, we had uniforms. I used to go by the bus, you know, I had after school activities. I came home, we had lunch at a certain hour. I went to sleep at a certain hour. I just felt like everything was already chosen for me, hmm. you know, ever since birth um, and even my identity. And um, I think it began when I was 13, I believe, or something like that. I used to, it started off by exercise, excessively exercising, and then um, dieting. And then I went on becoming full-on anorexic. (laughs) Wow. You know? And um, so when I came to Sudan, I was, I looked like just a skeleton, basically, and I and all my family noticed that I wasn't eating. And, you know, it's Africa. People eat all the time. They yeah. want, they want, especially the girls, to be, you know, fuller uh, in shape. So that was also confusing to me because I felt even in my in the way I look, I'm not really like these Sudanese girls, you know? Yeah. And so I wasn't like these people. I wasn't like these people. So I don't, I'm not really sure. Yeah. I feel like I was lost in character. So um, when I was here, I... You know, I was with my grandmother, who's Egyptian, by the way. And my mother's my mother's mother. <laughs> um, and that was also an experience because um, she was she was she was really old. She was like eighty something, and every <laughs> not that old. But every time every time she says something, she always compares compares it to Egypt. Mm-hmm. You know, like um, these tomatoes are good, but we have better tomatoes in Egypt. In Egypt. But she was. She's been here since uh, she got married when she was like 13 uh, to a Sudanese man or half Sudanese man. And then she came here. And that was interesting to me as well, living with her, is how she compares it to back home. She had this really strong identity to back home yeah. to Egypt, uh, even though she was she came here when she was really young and had like 12 kids or something. I mean, eight kids, sorry. Yeah. That's not the grandmother. <laughs> and... <laughs> And um, so I was living with her, going to high school here, and um, we always got into it about this food thing, you know, but I got away from there so I can figure out what I'm doing here. Eventually, I got over anorexia, but a bit a bit too late. Maybe I, I spent two years being anorexic, like not eating at all. Like I would have water and a banana a day or something. 
Mm-hmm. And um, when I went to high school here, I got kind of got really popular really fast, you know? Um, I had this Leonardo DiCaprio Titanic bag I used to carry around. It's like 1997. <laughs> 97, 90, yeah. I'm so mad I know that, but. <laughs> I'm about to Google it. No, I swear it's 1990, because I, I was starting college. <laughs> It's 1997. I swear to you. 97, 98. <laughs> I think so. I think so. I know. I so know. Skinny girl with this Leonardo DiCaprio bag just walking around high school, you know, and then everybody was just, they, they didn't know where I come from. Nobody knew what Qatar was. And why am I carrying the Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> bag every day to high school? And, you know, I just made a lot of friends really fast. And even when I was sick, I used to go to I go, used to go to school, so I knew that I was finding something that I really am interested about. Yeah. I used to love high school here. Um, like I, I would find reasons for me to stay in school or do after school activities, and you know. And after that, you know, with people that I met here, we used to go to the park sometimes. We used to go have beans at a local shop, you know, where they have like. Because Sudanese food or beans and in one um, plate and everybody would eat from the same plate, yeah. you know, just like really local stuff they used to do and just walk around, um, getting chased by dogs, you know, local <laughs> dogs. It's just, I love that experience is being in the streets here. And I think this is what kind of led me to, you know, being a street artist at the, at the end, you know what I mean? Oh. Kind of so, linked to that. So did you... So you did one year of high school. Did you finish out high school in Doha or did you finish it in Sudan? Um, I finished the GCSEs here. Okay. And then I couldn't do A-levels or something because after GCSE, there's A-levels. Right. For some reason, I don't know why. I don't know if I wanted to go back to uh, doing A-levels or the British system, but I went back to my old high school, which was an American curriculum, and I ended up doing year 12 over there instead of A-levels. level here. Okay. So it was a, it was a mix of both. <laughs> which, which makes absolute sense. I, here's, here's the very funny part. You're, you're the only person I've talked to and interviewed so far who's had a similar experience to me where they were both in the American and British system. That happened to me too, oddly enough, in my international <laughs> high school where I did the first, I think it was the first two years we did at the time, the British system. And then to prepare for GCSEs in the second two years prepared you for the American mm-hmm. system. So like, I actually get that, but most people, go it's too confusing how did you go back and forth it is it is and the um the american system believe it or not is much easier i believe than much and so you you eventually went on to vcu and i had thought you had graduated from vcu cutter but you started at vcu cutter and finished at VCU main campus in Richmond. And for those who don't know, that's Virginia Commonwealth University, which is in the state of Virginia. In Richmond. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what 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 was the inspiration for that? I mean, I know how cool both campuses are, but they're different. So what made you make that decision to go from the campus, the, the branch campus in, in Doha, and then go to the States to complete out? So when I went to, when I, when it came to, you know, going to university, I, 
I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was so confused. And I had to go back to thinking in both the British and, and, and American curriculums, what was I good at? It was only art, like nothing mm. else, just art, mm. art class. And, um, but I also wanted to be a lawyer. <laughs> okay. And uh, I remember when I was, when it was time to go to school, my dad signed me up for Lim Kokwing University in um, Malaysia. Mm. Um, to study creative technology or something like that. Mm-hmm. So even 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 high uh, university was already set for me, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I took another year off. I think it was 2007. I was like, no wait, <laughs> let me think about my future. Good for you. Myself. <laughs> Good so, for you. So I did a lot of you um, just call center uh, jobs and stuff like that, and then. Um, in 2008, I think we were the first batch. I'm not sure. Was it 2008 or 2007? But when I first came in, there was only like 15 of us or less mm-hmm. um, going to the university, you know? Uh, so I got accepted without a doubt. And um, yeah, I started um, doing my foundation year in 2008, where the foundation year is where you t- basically take up everything. Mm-hmm. Just drawing classes, painting, um, communication classes, art history, just like everything was just everything. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't, and there were three options that you had to choose from the second year, which is graphic design, interior design, and fashion design. Mm -hmm. And I still haven't made up my mind. I didn't know what graphic design was, Mm. you know? So I did my research in my foundation year. And then um, my first semester as a graphic designer, why I chose graphic design is because I knew I was good as, at um, just making things by my hands Yeah. and a good in drawing. And so that was the closest thing to creating things, you know, and I was specifically interested in logos. Yeah. Excuse me, branding and logo. So... I took I took up graphic design and then I heard about this exchange program to to Richmond. My grades were horrible. Like the, the first two three semesters, they were horrible. I used to take only four classes a semester and just I wanted to take my sweet time with university because I didn't know what I was doing or you know what my what my, what my future was going. So um, I heard about this exchange program, but you had to have I think a 3.8 GPA and above per, per semester. And I was, I can't remember the numbers, but I was way behind. <laughs> way, way, way. You were not a 3.8. You know that. I was, I'm not, <laughs> and I remember I applied twice, I believe. I think you were in the foundation here. I applied twice. And then um, in my first semester in, in as a graphic designer uh, major, I applied again. But this time I took I took eight courses in one go. Wow. And I got a I got a 3.92 fan that semester. <laughs> so you 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 made it yeah. work. Okay. Yeah, I made it work. I used to sleep in university and everything, you know? Panic uh. attacks and everything, but I made it work and I got I got, you know, A's on A's and on everything. You know, I think I got a one B in math or something, but I got an A in everything. Um and and I applied again, and I was the only one chosen that semester for wow. the for the program um, with a ten thousand dollars scholarship that covers um, tuition and um, um, uh, housing. Yeah, the dorms. Yeah. 
So yeah, I I um I went to Richmond and <laughs> and let me ask you this. Was this had you been to the US ever before this? I've been there before with my 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 brother used to, to go to uh Maryland University. Okay, University of, okay. So you'd been at University least in Maryland. Yeah, okay. So you'd at least been, been to the East Coast. Okay. But I'm sure it was this the first time going by yourself. By myself, yes. Okay. So, so this was really scary. <laughs> so I am super curious. What was your let me just ask, what was your experience? Okay, because you've come from Qatar, which we already know if people in Sudan didn't know where Qatar was. <laughs> I already know where this is going, you know, and, they're pro- all, and I'm ahead. sure they're trying to figure out where is this girl from? Like, are you, are you Brazilian? Lati- like, okay. So yeah. So, yeah. Oh, yeah that, that was a given. That was at the airport. Everybody was talking to me, to me and Latino. Is this Spanish? <laughs> Spanish all the time. I'm like, what? Huh? You talking to me? Oh my no. gosh. <laughs> yeah, I got that all the time. It was crazy. I wanted to have a, a tattoo on my head that actually pronounces my name and another one that says where I'm from. So I have to answer this <laughs> question all the time. But um, I remember when I first got there, there was somebody who picked me up from the airport, this driver assigned by the university uh, and took me to my dorms. And he picked me up from Dallas airport. I think it was two hours yeah. away from yep. Richmond. Yep. And it was snowing. And <laughs> it, it used to snow in Romania. I used to snow everywhere we traveled, but I was young at the time so I don't really remember other than the videos and I just remember I hated it I just you know the Middle East was really um warm yeah you know that we don't have snow we don't have winter so this to me was like it was so depressing (laughs) I was freezing and I was underdressed for this kind of weather I got to the dorm room someone um my staff uh, took me to my dorm and, you know, introduced me to my uh, roommates and stuff were, were half asleep. And then I was really hungry. So she, she tried to, she tried to explain to me where the 7-Eleven was. <laughs> and she said something about if you uh, use Google Maps, and I think that was also the beginning yeah. of yeah. when Google Maps came about. So I was like, what in the world is a Google Map? I used to go, go straight, turn left. You'll find the roundabout next to the tree and then, you know, <laughs> jump over the bridge and you'll get to your destination. I'm used to that. Right. And I'll not have it any other way. What was Google Maps? What do you want to do? How, how do I do this? How am I going to access any Google Maps? So I figured, I figured it out, but I called a taxi, which was a second away from where I was. And I got some cornflakes, came back and yeah, but <laughs> But I remember when I went to university, it was like a jungle. There was just so many people versus yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know, ten, fifteen people in the university in Qatar. Yeah. And the difference I first noticed when I when I took up my classes is how how the professors and you know uh, in Qatar were so focused on us ten because we were only ten. You know, and I was kind of known as the class clown, so that I was always getting into trouble being called out. But here I was the new girl. So I had an opportunity to be the new personality that I wanted to be. And so I was really focused, you know, and they sometimes professors don't even like know who I am because there's so many people come from different places. People come from Asia. I mean, like Asia, Asia. 
and there's there's just different people in class all the time so yeah they're not really focused on you as a person mm-hmm. versus how how your work is so my grades automatically went um they were so much better because of mm. because of that because nobody was really focused on who I was yeah and that was not the case back there you know mm. um and this is what I'm I'm curious about as an artist you know, if for people who haven't been to Richmond, Richmond actually is a really artistic city. And, and, and VCU, for those who don't know, has a very strong artistic history, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and even how you look at the main campus versus Cut, and, and the campus in Cut there is beautiful, but the campus in Richmond is just a different vibe, but you can kind of get a little bit more of that grimy, like, art. And, and the funny yeah. part is that most of VCU is not not necessarily in the arts, but you can feel the influence when you walk on that Richmond campus where you're like, okay, there's a creative vibe in it. And so I'm curious, even as you said that maybe your your academics were doing better, do you think it was also sort of being in this environment where Definitely. people were incredibly Definitely. serious about their, like there's a seriousness about their art that I noticed with the students that I've worked there that, it was just different, you know, and it's culturally different. It's not a good or bad thing, but I, I wonder if you felt that. Of course, uh, there, there was all different kinds of activities going on all the time. Even when I wanted to go eat, I, we had to go to the Schaefer Court, yep. and, you know, just wipe in and grab your meal. So there's a long walk, which I don't do in Qatar as well. I just come with my car from home, just park it, go into class. But here I had to I walk from my dorm room into campus and into campus. It's a good 10 minutes walk to uh, where I had to go. And then in, you know, uh, while walking, there's somebody playing a saxophone from the music school. Yeah. There's somebody dancing. There's all these fraternities and sororities doing the stepping, yeah. which was my favorite. Like that was, I was obsessed with these things. Like I used to miss sleep just to go watch um, one of these. And there's just, um, there's people protesting against, you know, um, animal cruelty. There's just mm-hmm. so many things going on and, while I'm walking, I always like make sure I uh, give it a good minute or two to, you know, take it in because it was just so new to me and it was so much. Mm-hmm. So I also ended up joining all these. Um, I joined the African Student Union. I joined the Muslim Student Union. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the rest, but I student government as well. So I, I took part in all these things so that I was always busy, you know, mm. being here by myself in a dorm room with people that I don't know. Um, I just wanted to stay busy so that I'm not really <laughs> focused, but I wasn't overwhelmed at the same time. You know what I mean? It, I know it was a lot, but I was not overwhelmed. The funny thing is, I, you know, I felt really, I felt like I was home more than I was back there. You know, I was really huh. expressing myself yeah. also in the way that I dress. Um, who, you know, people that I, I chose people that I wanted in my circle um, um, my makeup was different. I used to always love putting like really bright, like for example, um, eyeshadow, like Nicki Minaj, right? Yeah. You know, like, yeah. And and half of the time I've done things like this, it would it would look a bit weird. <laughs> well, and so I'll be opposite. So do you yeah. feel so when you mentioned going back to uh, Sudan and you were talking about trying to get tethered to your identity, do you feel like when you were in Richmond, your identity kind of came out in full bloom, like? How did you see your identity there? Like, did you see yourself as, and, and there, 
there's so many labels we can put. So it's not a matter of choosing one, but did you see yourself as a African woman, an Arab woman, an Afro-Arab woman, a Muslim woman, an art, like what were the labels you, you or identities you started to see come out once you were in Richmond? I only joined these, these uh, organizations or, or associations because, because I was African and I was Muslim. But these are things that are just just given, right? Mm-hmm. These are not things that you choose per se. So I joined them just so I can be aware of everything. And mm-hmm. uh, and in between these things, I still didn't feel like I, I was being adapted to one specific thing. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I was I was I was a teenager. I was evolving. My personality was evolving. I was finding out, as cliche as that sounds, I was finding out who I was. Mm-hmm. Um, so I made sure I, I do everything and I try everything and get myself into um, also, um, for example, being told that I was a bit homophobic, for example. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. And once I got to Richmond, just seeing that everywhere and talking to me and being friends with people that were um, in that community, um, I re-evaluated re-eva- um, my, mm-hmm. uh, what I was taught, for example, or what I was said to like or hate or mm-hmm. um, be okay with. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these preconceptions that I had before coming to the States um, were basically wiped out and I, and I made up my, my new uh, solid uh, personality by being accustomed to all these things. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, totally. No, it absolutely does. And so you you just you made the decision to stay in Richmond and finish your degree there. So it was it was a it was a scholarship for one semester, so that's like three four months. Yeah. And when it was time to go back home, I was like, I'm I'm not. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just having too much fun. I'm not coming back. Um, so I, was, I reached out to my parents. I'm like, I know this is going to be really expensive because I'm not an interstate student. I'm not an out-of-state. I'm an international. International. So yep. You're paying triple. I'm still paying for university. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So they um, they it's a triple uh, amount to pay for the yeah. university if you are uh, not American as well. So yeah. Um, that part and also um, my grades were better. So they couldn't really say anything as well. So mm-hmm. I just send them my <laughs> your you know, transcript my report. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you guys, you guys have nothing to say. So, <laughs> my grades know, are great. If it comes down to, if it comes down to paying my tuition, I'll, I'll work at a, you know, McDonald's <laughs> or something. It's okay. I got it. <laughs> Love it. So, so yeah, they agreed. And I ended up uh, graduating in May, 2011. And also, sorry, I was doing graphic design as well as, fashion design so mm-hmm. I was a minor in fashion design in the first year but like I said just there like the structure of the the building because it was so big and uh, it took me so much time to walk from from class to class so every time I was late to from my graphic design course to my fashion design course my grades would um have to go down um yeah. every time I'm late to class so I ended up dropping fashion unfortunately. but I but I took all the the courses, the main courses like textile history and um, yeah, fabric. So so it'll be noted. You took the classes even if you didn't get the pay. 
we'll say she did F-R-I. take the fashion class. Just so we know, she took the class. I write that on my CV as well. Like, my <laughs> like, okay, you no, know you should. Not. No, I'm a career really? counselor. You should. You should absolutely oh, write it. <laughs> I took so many summer courses. And you did it. I'm not letting that go. Nope. <laughs> so this is a great segue into the fact that you are a street artist. And for the people who don't know what that is, what is street art? How would you describe it? I did this class in um, in Richmond called Design Rebels. Hmm. And um, we were four people in that class. And I remember we had to come up with um, a solution to an environmental, a creative solution to an in- environmental problem. problem. Okay. So we all agreed on doing something on, on you know, trash and uh, hmm. recycling. So my my part in the project was, or my idea was to go about Richmond, go around Richmond and look at what's in, you know, the trash trash cans and um, see what's mostly used, with, whether it's plastic, whether it's mm-hmm. whatever, anything else. And then um, to make a trash pyramid, like a large sculpture of a trash pyramid mm-hmm. and... Um, I would spray paint the trash according to what's mostly used. So the bottom, the red part, you know, the bottom bigger part of the pyramid would be plastic mm. and then, you know, fabric and then so on and so forth. And um, we we displayed that in uh, Broad Street, I remember. And uh, a lot of people were coming up to us asking what the sculpture was. And um, it was a way to raise awareness on recycling and you know stuff mm-hmm. like that and that was the pyramid itself a lot of people were taking pictures of trash spray painted mm-hmm. trash <laughs> that was that was street art <laughs> because uh, you know it, it just looked pretty it really looked pretty after we we're done you know we were so proud and um it was all over social media it was in the school magazine and stuff like that but it was just an idea that came about but it became art because you basically can make anything into art from the streets. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be graffiti. I mean, graffiti is just one form of street art, right? There's also mm-hmm. stickers. There's um, like writing something somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, that you use the whole, um, you know, you use the wall, you use the street as the, the, uh, the canvas. So mm-hmm. that can be anything. Um, mm-hmm. So you can be part of, the street are just by standing there mm. people who do um what do you call them oh miming who <laughs> mimes like pantomime. exactly that's that's another form of street art he's a street artist mm. somebody does something in the streets people play musical instruments that's all form of street art you're do you're bringing art to the streets you're not going into a gallery mm-hmm. where specific people are invited to that gallery handing out invitations to these people so you have a a specific crowd that's going to see the art street is everything that involves the street it's the cars the pedestrians the walls the trees as well mm-hmm. so i'll is, give you an example in a bit and i was going to say so inherently is street art in your opinion just more easily accessible to everyone of course yeah um like i said you can be you can be carrying a pen and you know you're making something. There was this um, artist that goes around and finds really 
dirty cars like full of sand and then she she's Japanese or something and she actually makes these mind-blowing um portraits and just pictures wow. just by her finger using her finger and just wiping out the sand and it makes really amazing so that's another form of also street art because the car was in the street you know <laughs> <laughs> and so for you what is and I I've seen some of your work and I I I know that you use and have done graffiti quite a bit. Is that your primary mechanism or are there other are there other forms that you that you generally use? Um that is the primary uh when I first got started I began doing just graffiti. Mm-hmm. In the beginning I was doing um very amateur stuff just mm-hmm. just you know just words like Sudan or Qatar just bombing, tagging um, words. I was also practicing my Arabic. And um, I began doing street art in Qatar in 2012 mm-hmm. when I first... Um, uh, sorry, there's a lizard right there. <laughs> I mean, is it a gecko or yeah. a lizard lizard? Is it a gecko? It, yeah, it's a gecko. Oh, yeah, I mean... <laughs> You're in the habitat, like I. <laughs> um, so I stayed downstairs, but I specifically came up to this apartment because the internet is better here. Yeah, because you know, it's yeah. the higher uh, nice. the better the internet. Third world problems, right? But it's also infested with these things in this apartment. But anyway, I'm gonna <laughs> back to the conversation. It's um, all good. Yeah, I started doing street art in 2012 in Qatar. And um, when I came to Sudan, I basically used Sudan as, as like in my practicing zone. So I was really bad at my Arabic fonts and mm-hmm. my Arabic in general, like writing Arabic and stuff. I know how to talk in Arabic, but writing, reading wasn't that great. So, and so was my um, tagging in Arabic. Mm-hmm. But I do, but I do do, um, uh, what's it called? Stickers. Mm-hmm. Especially in the revolution, there's a lot of stickers uh, of the um, overthrown president, Amr al-Bashir, and um, uh, my own logo, the Asil app, or the mm-hmm. Suda Love logo, my own brand. There's a lot of stickers, a lot of... So I use that as, like, how I advertise my, my you know, myself as a brand. So yeah. there's a lot of stickers as well. Um, I have a lot of uh, pens, like these marker, mm-hmm. uh, MTN, Malto pens that I just write, tag my names in, you know, buses or something. You know, I saw when I did my internship in Brooklyn while I was um, studying in, in, in the United States, I used to see that everywhere as well. Because mm-hmm. I used to ride the subways every day, so see mm-hmm. a lot of tagging in there. Mm-hmm. So that's where I picked up that notion and idea that it doesn't just have to be spray painting onto something. And so I'm I'm curious because you, you you take it back to 2012 2013 and and the work that you were doing in in Qatar. I'm curious, did you did you get any pushback? Because it, I'm imagining at that time, no one, or if they were, there were very few people were even doing graffiti art in Qatar. Did you ever run into any challenges there? Um, as you were starting out? When I signed up for the internship, I didn't even know that was a graffiti project. Because I was a fresh graduate, I came back 
2012 from the States. And I was looking for, you know, work and internships. And that was, they just said it was an arts project. So I signed up when I went and got accepted. The first day of, of the of the internship, um, the internship was with El um, Cid, who's a, he's a, you know, very famous uh, calligraphy artist. So he uh, joined calligraphy, Arabic calligraphy with graffiti mm-hmm. to make uh, calligraphy. So that was his thing. That was his uh, mark, right? Yeah. And on the first day, uh, we were like four assistants. He had us all like take the, the spray can and like do a straight, he asked us all do a straight line using a spray paint. And that, that was one of the hardest things I had to do is just get one straight line using a spray paint because you're not really touching the wall like how you would with a brush and using paint. Yeah. It's it's basically the pressure from your finger on the nozzle. Yeah. And, and the distance from the wall and um, just patience as well. It, it, it combines everything in your body. Yeah. You know, you have full focus of body, mind, it's all together, you know. And um, I just basically, out of like the forest distance, I think I got it right, you know, the best line. <laughs> yeah. I'm so excited about that because I just watched him do it and I did this exact same thing. And he was like, okay, you got it. So you got it. So, and then every time um, he wanted to, to, to get on a new wall, he would outline, you know, where he wanted uh, me to spray and he would just call me to finish Wow. What he was doing. So I got a lot of practice from him. Wow. Um, sorry, what was the question? <laughs> so I so that that was early on. So I, I guess then my, where I was going with that is were Just you sessions? Well, no, well, were you one of the earliest folks who was who was doing graffiti art in, in Qatar at that time? Or were there other the, people? Yeah, there was there was no street art scene in Qatar or Sudan. So once this guy this guy was commissioned, this artist was commissioned by Ashkhan and Qatar Museum. So he flew in, did that one project, and then left. Gotcha. And then when he left, I was like, why do I need to find a job when there's no market for street art here? And why did they have to bring in somebody from overseas? And while I can obviously do this, you know, I've had mm-hmm. an intense four month long uh, internship. Yeah. And I can do this. You know what I mean? And I, I looked at Sudan as well. And I was like, there's no, there's not, not even no street art scene. There's no idea what, what it was as well. So, you know, I, I thought about just in one year, just going back and forth and doing a lot of work and free work, mind you, you yeah. know, yeah. These people's houses, just going out in Sudan specifically, um, there's so many, so many walls because the dollar rate here fluctuates so badly every day. So there's so many um, buildings and people building their houses or companies that they begin building it. But then when the dollar rate goes really high, they just dip. They leave and then it's just an abandoned building. And then a lot of the homeless people go in and live there. So I thought, you know, why not make this place look pretty? It's just so much, so many of these um, buildings over here that they're just, they're just brown, you know? And it's yeah. Africa, it is brown. So why not just try to, like, add some color to these walls? So that's what I did. I did that in Qatar. Um, obviously, in Qatar, it's much harder to do that unless you're commissioned. 
yeah. to uh, do these walls. But I did a lot of my friends' houses, their mm. walls. Um, wow. Yeah. And I think my first project was with the uh, Puppet Racing Club. Oh, wow. Wow. My actual paid graffiti. <laughs> got, got money for it, not just. <laughs> I got lots of money, <laughs> money for yeah, it. I was like, okay. I'm going to quit. Now, it's, now, now you know it's a thing. When you <laughs> So in 2018 was the start of at least what we're going to call the modern Sudanese <laughs> revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, Correct. I mean, it was big. It, it was, you know, it was in something that was followed internationally. And I was curious, you know, Sudan was going under a seismic shift. Where, where were you at the start of everything that was going on were you in Sudan or were you at that point traveling well I was in I just flew back from Sudan in I think in uh, October I think I went to Qatar spent a few weeks and I went I was in Bali okay (laughs) I mean as you know side note (laughs) <laughs> let's talk about bali appears a lot in a podcast like i more people go yeah i went to bali and i still have not been to bali so that's 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 super fun. i was i was you have to go to bali i was i was there for four days and i ended up staying for a month oh you need it self-care take care of yourself i relax. took myself on a full full-on honeymoon like i took myself to this <laughs> really nice peaceful place and everybody was for so many couples i'm like what is this like, <laughs> what? this is like a honeymoon destination i was like oh okay, <laughs> okay. Me- meanwhile revolution is starting <laughs> across the planet but you're like wait let me let me prep myself so so <laughs> so I, wasn't, I, I, was, I was in bali but i flew into doha and two weeks into that into that then the revolution began. the revolution began and yeah. so at, at at one point, you know, for those who don't know, obviously the former president Omar al-Bashir was was overthrown in a coup. But at what point did you decide to go back in Sudan in the middle of this? Okay, so when I flew back to Doha and there was this one day my parents had on Al Jazeera or something on TV. And then I, I saw there was protests and um, there's so many people out versus, because there was protests like this in 2016 and 2013. Mm -hmm. Um, But I usually give it a week to two and the government usually just either kills a lot of people and, or throws tear gas or just locks them up or it just, they break down the protests really quick. But this one, I was like, this is going to go on. I think it was, we were in mid December and I was like, this is going to break up before new year's. Hmm. And then new year's came in a week after new year's came in and I keep seeing more and more people coming out and then um, more and more and more people, especially people my age, like teenagers and just the youth were just yeah. getting shot left and right. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I just, that's when I really started to focus, you know, and then I go on social media, I see all these people like beginning to just either write 
things or just uh, blog, you know, blog about what's going on or uh, some people were making songs, hmm. just the beginning of it. Uh, some people were creating artwork. A lot of photography work was happening during the protest. There's so many people taking their cameras, like taking actual photographs of people throwing back tear gas at the um, the government uh, enforcers. And um, so I, I thought, you know, what do I do here? Should I to support what's happening? And, you know, mm-hmm. should I do something that's by my degree, which is graphic design? Should I design something or should I talk? Or I was so confused. I didn't know how to, ha- how to like be part of this. Mm-hmm. And um I went to I went to my dad. I remember, and I was as a as a joke in the beginning. I was like, uh, he was like, he said something about all oh, all these kids are dying. This Sudan is just going nowhere, something like that. And I was like, Dad, I'm 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 going to Sudan. Mm. So he's like, yeah, if you he said something about if you don't want us to see you again, then you can go, <laughs> you know, and. Um, I was like, everybody's everybody's out there, you know, protesting. Why should I be? I feel guilty for. And then it went on to a serious conversation really quick. I was like, why am I here in Qatar? Like, why am I protected like this? Like, this is this is the only time I get to really experience my my identity and my nationality. So, and to really do something. Hello. Yeah, I can hear okay, you. Sorry. Sorry, I just pressed on my other um, headphone. So I was like, "Why? Why do I need to be here? I need to. I need to fly into Sudan and just do something." Yeah. And there was a lot of talk. And when he said no, is like when I insisted more into doing that. Like that wasn't even the initial plan, but I think just having these talks with him I was like, "Yo, you guys really like, you know, you've just been protecting me all my life. I'm an adult now, like." Mm-hmm. I and I thought about him leaving when Amr Bashir came in and when I was born, you know, him and all these other diplomats instead of like, I mean, who knows what they could have done, right? But I'm just saying this is our time to, yeah. to do something. So why not just instead of leaving and, yeah. you know, why not go back and do something? And so... I booked my ticket. I, I I told my parents, you know, I booked my ticket on this date, and it was January 18th. So that's exactly a month after the first protest, which is yeah. was it 18th or 19th? December 18th, January 18th. I was in Khartoum. Hmm. And I love the the fact that you started this by talking about art as protest right? And how people were responding. So obviously at this point, you're, you're, you're building your portfolio. You, you're an artist. What did you, what was your hope when you got to Sudan that you'd be doing? And more importantly, how did you think you'd be using your art throughout all of this? Okay. Before that, there was a couple of people on like Twitter or something. They used to take pictures of like, walls in, in, in like landmark walls, you know, in main streets where there's a lot of protests and then Photoshop images of Omar al-Bashir on the wall or something. 
and then they would write some like calling all artists to come do something. So the graffiti culture became a thing at the time. And obviously nobody did that because the the RSF and you know the rapid uh, security forces and all the government forces were at every corner. Mm. And um, all they had to do is just raise their gun and you'll be, your back is towards the street and you're painting something. All they had to do is shoot you mm. to stop you from protesting. That's it. You know, I'll just leave you there until somebody finds your body. So it wasn't something that was easy, you know, easily said or designed or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I, when I came here, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. All I knew was, knew was I wanted to just be here in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I wanted street art to be the thing. But when I came in here, because I knew I, maybe I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to paint something on a wal. I had already printed stickers with Amr al-Bashir's face on them. And this, um, you know, the poop emoji on WhatsApp and stuff. So I had that on his head. And um, yeah, I did a few of those. And I had printed them and I got a lot of spray paint with me. So my bag was filled with these stickers. And I was really afraid of, because they open your bag at the airport here. Yeah, yeah. But this is where my diplomatic passport came in handy because I completely forgot that they don't need to search my bag unless there's some kind of actual warrant or something. So coming in here, you know, with all the spray paint and all these stickers, because I can go to jail just for that. And yes. once you get to jail, you know, anything can happen to you. you could, they could actually kill you on purpose or rape you, whatever the hell they wanted to do while you're in jail. So in custody. So, but when I, when I came, like I said, I just, you know, pulled out my passport and even then he was a bit, you know, it, it, like suspicious, mm-hmm. you know? And I was like, I know my rights and you're not, you're not supposed to open my bag. There's not, if you have, if you want to point out something in the x-ray, then okay, then I'll let you know what that is. So you don't need to open my bag. Unless you, have, unless you want me to call my lawyer. I had no lawyer at the time or anything. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really adamant about that. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm used to this. So, you know, I just, I got into Fatum and when I, and I, and I, and I stayed with uh, my cousins, like in, in another city and they had this house, like in this area where there's so many farms. So it was, I wanted to stay with them because it was easier for, should anything happen, it was easier for, for them to find me. Mm-hmm. If versus me staying in my house was which is in the capital of Porto, mm-hmm. and then there is where I thought about what I wanted to do, and I I knew the story that that touched my heart the most was these stories of these um, the youth passing away, being killed every day, mm-hmm. um, men and women, you know, boys and girls, and that to me regardless of everything else and why people were protesting and why people were killing, that means regardless of whatever the, whatever's going on, why are you killing them? They're protesting peacefully. So why are they being shot in the first place? Mm-hmm. You know? So I got this idea of painting portraits, not of Omar al-Bashir, but I mean, I've done that with the stickers, right? Mm-hmm. But now... I'm gonna I'm gonna do portraits of these martyrs. Mm. But how was the question? 
how was I going to do this was took a lot of time. It took me about three weeks to figure this out. In the meantime, I've, I've been participating in all these protests, uh, talking to people, discussing my ideas as well with some people mm-hmm. um, who were safe to talk to and trying to see how I can actually um, get get one or two uh, of these marchers painted. Never would I have thought I would go up to a forty, a number of forty-three. Mm-hmm. So I was talking to this this reporter friend. Her name is Suzanne Suleiman, and she's like, you know, I said, why don't you go to these hoods where these uh, mm-hmm. uh, marchers live, and um, before, once you get there, try to like knock everybody's house and try to get the kids our age to come out and like keep a watch out for you while you paint Mm. you know and I thought this was like this was gold advice because it was just perfect I could I imagined it while she was talking to me which is great because the infrastructure of Sudan there's the main streets and then the inner roads are very sandy Mm -hmm. I mean they could still come in there but it's if if you're in the main road you can see who's coming in so should anybody be coming in the main roads they can you know yell or Mm -hmm call us or do whatever to have me stop painting. So I thought that would be, that's the perfect mm-hmm. idea. So um, I gathered a group of volunteers. So for example, Amanda, you would be in charge of um, like calling the marchers families mm-hmm. and getting an initial okay mm-hmm. for us to do something like that. And there was a lot of no's by the way, because they don't know what street art is and mm-hmm. they didn't understand why they would want their dead daughter or um, son's portrait in the house like why would you want to see that every day mm-hmm. but then I compared it to having like a picture in your house you know you're mm-hmm. paying tribute to their lives and not just you but everybody in in you know the area would would walk and um, uh, say their prayers and you know uh, mm-hmm. do what they got to do to some people were doing were giving financial support some people giving emotional support after these these portraits came up so when we got the okay, another person would be in charge of how would we get there? You can't really call an Uber to mm-hmm. uh, to these marchers' houses. You can't really, you know, uh, we had to have a trusted driver and somebody who really knows, knows how to drive, like fast and furious, <laughs> fast, yeah. you know? Because yeah. when the RSF comes in, like I said, uh, a bazooka, a, a gun, an AK-47, whatever they have to do to... To kill you is is what they're gonna do. Mm. Wow! And um, I had when I first wanted to do the first portrait, which was um, uh, Doctor Babikir, Doctor Babikir Salama's house <clears throat> in uh, Bahri. I had uh, I had a team of like four four people, I believe, and. One of them was driving and somebody else was, um, I gave him my GoPro. So I bought a GoPro before going there so we can try to get some footage to get anything online was was a crime within itself. Like even if you had left the area and they saw a video of you, they can actually find me just by this video, right? wherever you are. And they're not just gonna kill you, they'll kill everybody who knows you or threaten them or whatever. Right. So, um, so I had I gave this guy my GoPro. I had another guy who I gave him I think a phone or something so he can uh, just take pictures. You know I wanted to have some sort of documentation to what we were doing. 
And once we got there, um, the first day we arrived, I think at around 6 p.m. So it was already really dark for me to think because the street art and, you know, uh, like I said, the infrastructure here in Sudan is, it's not that lit outside. Mm-hmm. Again, another another governmental issue is like we don't have really proper lighting in the streets. Yeah. Um, so what I did was just, go, I went with Suzanne as well and I sat down with his mother, the marker's mother. Mm-hmm. And um, she made us tea and she was talking and she uh, she gave me like his educational background and she said so many stories about him. And I just, re- all I remember was she never shed a tear. Hmm. I was, I was just, this was my first house and this was my first painting. So I was shook. Yeah. You know, I, it was really hard to maintain. Uh, so I had to excuse myself to the bathroom every other second. And, you know, I was just really nervous the whole time. And I met his sister is really beautiful. And I it was the only guy, the uh, man of the house, basically, you know, he had like five sisters. So it was, it was really and he's well well educated. He studied in Malaysia. He's a doctor, and he died while treating another martyr. Like they shot him because he was treating another martyr at the time. That's the story of how they killed him. He came out with his hands up. He's like, "I'm just a- attending to uh, uh, somebody who's wounded," and they just one of the RSF just full of his gun and just shot him in the head. Hmm. That was it. And there's a video out there. Anyway, so. Um, she, the mother took me outside and she was like, you know, when before he died, before my baby was shot, um, I had, I was building this part of the house. And when, when this wall was finished, and she's saying it with all excitement, she was like, when this wall was finished, it was a, a few days before he was shot. So this is like, this canvas was, was completed just so I can have his portrait up on me. And that killed me, like that sentence, like, and uh, so um, it seems that, you know, as you're telling that story, it, it, it seems like a lot of things just sort of jump out to me in the sense that we started off this interview talking about kind of identity, sense of purpose and all of that. (laughs) And then all of these things are happening in Sudan and it seems like they're all, it comes full circle, right? The, the, that you're hearing these stories that the country was under significant change that, that the, the thing that you believe, the one thing that you said you're good at art (laughs) has a place in this and, 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 and you're able to sort of take your your talent and your experiences to document what is a very tragic shift, right? I mean, because there's there's not a single revolution that I think ever happens where God knows there's always bloodshed. But I think that you your willingness to highlight these stories because these are names we would never know. And, 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 and forget those of us who did not live in Sudan, did not experience mm-hmm. it, who are not Sudanese, but just even the people in the communities, right? Like the willingness to be able to go sit down and hear these stories. Because 
and I'm a trained counselor. It's really hard (laughs) to hear really, really tragic, especially with young people. And to be able to take that and interpret it, right? And put it on a canvas. And so, yeah, no, that's, it's insane. But I'm glad you did it. (laughs) And, And to hear that, and to sort of hear that first story from that mother, you know, I mean, this is this is part of the reason why art exists, right? You're a storyteller. I mean, I I, I don't care whether you yeah. write with words or stickers or graffiti or watercolor or crayons or blood. <laughs> You're a storyteller. And so obviously a lot of things happened in Sudan as as that was going on and 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 the aftermath. Um, how do you think having been there has impacted your art since then? Like going through and kind of seeing the protest and, and, and your street art, how do you think it's, has it changed your art? I think, um, what I did here and these ideas that came about, they came from from passion, just pure passion. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it it affected my art. It affected me, and it involuntarily affected my art. So mm-hmm. it was like this ripple effect that happened. You know, from passion came that, and it solidified my identity as well. You know, mm-hmm. everything that I was doing, all these things that I was going through. It all kind of connected and, you know, the final result was this project. And even in, in that, when I was in Bali, um, I was just having a good time. I was doing a lot of, I tried yoga for the first time and, you know, and I wasn't, I wasn't, so I don't know how to show this, but like, for example, being accustomed to, like I said, so many things in my life, and being uh, introduced to so many things, uh, but also being told, you know, what you can do within these boundaries. Yeah, I mean, it's supposed to, it's supposed to, I guess you're supposed to kind of lose your identity. Mm, Yeah. But I think all these things, I didn't know it at the time, but they're all added to shape mm-hmm. what my that the conversation that I had with my dad before going to Sudan. It all led to that conversation mm-hmm. and me saying, "No, you know, I'm going to go, mm-hmm. and I'm not. I'm trying to figure things out." So I think these the all these things came from a place of passion and a place of uh, a true identity. Mm-hmm. And, and and that's where that art came up the idea of it it's not about um what the artwork looks like like you said or, or what medium you use it's 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 the message you know and being being a woman out here like painting and doing street art and uh revolting you know when you're doing you are when you're in the protest there's so many people out there so you're protected yeah you know by there's so many people so the chances of you being shot out of all these are slimmer than 
when you're out with a group of four people and, and, and doing something like that. So that was the main message uh, before, before the street art, before mm-hmm. anything else came in. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't paying these people, but they wanted to do this because they, they saw, they felt that passion as well. Mm-hmm. So we all became connected. Again, identity came in. We all became connected because there was this one vision, one goal, one passion for that identity of being Sudanese and my love for Sudan. Mm. And yeah. No, that's such a good statement. <laughs> I was just like, wait, I like that statement. I'm probably gonna quote you on it. <laughs> so let me so as we wrap up though, here I, I like to ask three questions and they're all different depending on who the person is but you've given me some stuff to think about and I I'd be really interested to hear your responses to this so first question is what do you think is the biggest misconception or the or the biggest raw uh, biggest this is going to sound grammatically wrong the thing that people get wrong about Sudan? Like, what do you wish, or let me make it positive. What do you wish people knew about Sudan? Um, so Sudan is, well, I read something a long time ago on, on, first of all, it's the largest African country in Africa. And also it has a very fertile land. So mm-hmm. if you throw a watermelon seed just by eating and throwing there, there's you know, going to be a plant or a tree going there. So our issue is the government really just um, stuck all the good out of this country and you know abused it and sold some land and just really um, messed things up. And our media is is also run by the government as well. So we don't we don't have. Um, but thanks to social media and mm-hmm. other platforms, um, I think a lot of people are doing a great job, like the project that's, that we're working on right now, the Sudan Animal Rescue. Mm. Um, um, the Osman Saleh has been on Nas Daily, for example, uh, for the for rescuing so many lions and animals that were starving. Who, who would think a, a, a lion would starve to death? You know, a lion can die from anything, but not starvation. Yeah. And when a lion starves, you you can tell the economic status of that country. So, and so Osman made a GoFundMe page. I came in, I'm doing graffiti. There's so many people coming and doing what they do best. And we created a whole environment around saving um, these animals, which is also part of our uh, resources Mm -hmm. here in Sudan. What I want people to know is that there's... All these, especially not the non the Sudanese. I want them to know that you don't have to leave Sudan mm. to 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 um, just don't give up on Sudan. Come back here. Um, there's so much potential here, and um, it's really hard to tell people to be patient. You have to practice patience when you're here, mm-hmm. and just pick something. Everybody has some some role here. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I found what I what, what I can provide here, which is this street art. And who would have known street art could be a thing here or I can make a living out of it here. But I am, mm. which is something that was out of context at the time. And it took it took just a couple of years to get there. So and so I can imagine 
there's so much potential for other people as well. Just just don't give up on Sudan and other people shouldn't uh, should know Sudan by themselves. Travel out here, help support the tourism, mm-hmm. um, help uh, you know the Black Lives Movement, help support Black businesses, help support these businesses uh, that are online as well. You know, Love African it. businesses. Just just reach out, see what people are doing, especially the youth, because it's the youth who began, uh, who started this uh, revolution and who died for this change. So help support the youth, find out what they're doing, be involved in the community. Don't just go to work, come back, sleep, repeat, you know, just find out what everybody's doing. Second question. I know you're an artist and this is probably a loaded question, but who's your favorite artist? <laughs> I, I would say my favorite artist because he taught me what I know today is Nelson. That, good choice. Good choice. <laughs> I, I gained all my all my. He taught me all the props and you know techniques, and so I know what I know today because of Nelson. So kudos to him. Mm. Third question. Last question. If you weren't an artist, what would you do? A lawyer. For real? Yeah. Well, you, you didn't mention you were interested in law. <laughs> First of all, I love arguing. <laughs> so I mean, and I love proving my point. And I, you know, I like, I'm very OCD about details. I think that's why I'm also an, an artist, you know, in everything that I do. I really focus on details. So whether it's in like, things that people say or you know um I'm, I'm very forgetful as well <laughs> and I think that has a lot to do with just taking so much in yeah so I pick important things to remember <laughs> or like I prioritize my brain capacity but yeah I, I I have a way with proving my point sometimes I feel like a lawyer is my best um <laughs> That's a, oh that's a good thing. Asil, where can people find you on the internet? I'm everywhere. I'm on <laughs> Facebook, um, at Asil Diab Art. Mm-hmm. Um, Love on Instagram, S-U-D-A-L-O-V-E. Um, also on Twitter, Love underscore. And yeah, I have a website, www.asildiab.com, but it's under prescription at the moment. Okay. But my Instagram is my go-to main page. And we'll have all of your links in our show notes and our website and all of that. And honestly, if you follow us on Instagram, we follow her. So you could just go through our friend list and find, if you can't remember, it's like, who's that person? Go through our friend list. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the hard way. Honestly, let's all follow each other. Let's all follow. But honestly, if you go on our website, it will be up on our website with all her links. Thank you so much. And and the fact that we were able to make this work with the time difference and the electricity, electricity. and the lizard. <laughs> oh my God. Thank God. And, and the lizard. <laughs> so, but. It's still right there. Is this, really? Right yeah, it's just frozen. I don't know. African lizard. Man, when I first moved to Cameroon, I saw one run across and I screamed, like I was 10. I screamed. I was like, what is this? And I was like, it's a gecko. And I'm like, <laughs> 
<laughs> I didn't want it, but now now um now I'm grown and I'm okay. But I still don't like them. Because I'm scared they're gonna I, like fall on my head. Like, that's exactly why it freaks me out because I feel like he's just gonna fall on my head and then he's gonna freeze on my head and then Yeah, no, because I've seen one fall. The Global Chatter with the Black Expat is hosted by me, Amanda Bates. It is produced by Justin Williams. You can find the show wherever you get your podcast or follow us on our YouTube channel at The Black Expat Presents. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.